All right. Thanks, AJ. Good morning to you. Well, if you're new, my name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here. If you haven't been with us before, you picked a great Sunday to join us because we're going to teach the whole book of Ecclesiastes in four verses. Uh, turn, if you would, uh, go ahead and start. You can start to find Ecclesiastes right in the middle of your Bible in the poetic literature. We're in the last little bit of this book. Um, the book of Ecclesiastes is broken down. If you haven't been with us, that's okay. Let me give you a, a quick overview of the book of Ecclesiastes. The first half of it, Solomon is examining life under the sun. What he calls is his way of looking at life without a spiritual perspective. He kind of divorces his philosophical searchings from any kind of idea of God and tries to understand life with his five senses. And the way he does that in the first half of the book is looking at work. And he looks at work and he says, what can I accomplish? What can I gain if I really put my mind to it? And by the end of his searching and all of his examining of life and all the things that he accomplished, he comes to the end of that search and he says, all is vanity, all is empty, all is here and is transient, is ephemeral, and it's here for just a moment, and then it's gone. And in three generations, we're forgotten. And everything that's meaningful to me, that I've found my purpose and my delight in and all of those things, is silenced by death. And then he turns in the second half of the book and he looks for meaning. If I can't, find meaning in my work, maybe I can find meaning through wisdom. Maybe I can utilize wisdom to make my life have purpose and meaning and design. And he finds that life in this world is topsy-turvy, isn't it? That the rich and the wealthy sometimes are also wicked. That they live long while the righteous live short lives. And there's no real uh, way to figure out life in such a way that I make it work for me. Have you found that? That life doesn't work on your terms. Amen? Amen. It doesn't work on my terms either. I'm a professional Christian. And it doesn't work on my terms either. It's still broken. That life is loaded. And though I can use wisdom to accomplish some good things in life, that wisdom itself, while work and, and accomplishment is not an ultimate thing, neither is wisdom. Wisdom is not an ultimate thing. So where we come in this book is to the last few verses. And what these last few verses are going to do for us is zoom out from the book of Ecclesiastes. So I want to illustrate just with a couple of, kind of give you a little bit of a running start to understand what these last few, last few verses are in this book. They're really, really important. They summarize all of the teaching of Ecclesiastes in four little bitty verses. But they highlight something for us that is uh, what I would call an occupational hazard of Bible reading. That when you read the Bible or you consider spiritual things, sooner or later, you're going to experience the tension between how and what you are learning and how and what you are living. You ever been there? That I read things in the scriptures, that I learn about God and who he is, that I embrace promises, that I look at stories that I can tell you about Noah and how many animals he brought on the ark, but then I look at my life and I try to figure out, well, how does that matter? How is it that I'm living and how often do I discover in my own life a disjointed or a disjunction between what I know to be true and how I live? We've been there, right? That man, I don't live the truth that I proclaim. And the danger 
in this text is really highlighted all, all throughout the Old Testament. I, to, to show you this, keep your finger in Ecclesiastes. I want you to turn to Deuteronomy 32. We're just going to introduce this idea um, broadly with an Old Testament uh, view. Solomon, what you're going to see in this text here this morning is that Solomon is in line of a lot of wisdom thinkers, a lot of people who have written scripture who've come before them. And in these individuals who are incredibly um, significant in your Old Testament, these significant Old Testament characters come to the end of their life and they realize that their life is coming to an end. They're facing death. They're on the doorstep of stepping into uh, going to their eternal home, which is what we looked at last week in the, the uh, beginning of Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Deuteronomy 32 is the song of Moses, where Moses talks about the, um, we looked at this in the book of Revelation, actually, that there are saints around the throne who sing the song of Moses. And in Deuteronomy 32, Moses writes at the end of his life, and he counsels the future generation and what they should do and who they ought to be. Look at Deuteronomy 32, verse 44. 32, verse 44. Moses came and recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. He and Joshua, the son of Nun. And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to Israel, he said to them, take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law, for it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land you are going over to the Jordan to possess." Moses, in all of their story, all of the redemption, all of the desert wanderings, comes to the next generation and he says, pay attention to the word. Be careful to do the word. And then if you know the story, who succeeds Moses is Joshua, who's mentioned in that passage. Turn to the end of Joshua with me. Turn to your right to Joshua 23. Joshua gets to the end of his life, the end of taking the land that God has given to them, and he gives a charge to Israel's leaders. Look at Joshua 23, verse 6. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand or to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them, but you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you a great and strong nation. As for you, no man has been able to stand before you on this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord God who fights for you just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnants of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord has given you. Beware. Cling to the Lord. Follow his word. Turn to your right again to 1 Kings chapter 2. 1 Kings chapter 2 is Solomon's daddy. 
who gives him a charge at the end of his life. And you've got to think that here's Solomon in the line of one of the greatest kings in Israel's history who now has a charge from his dad to him about the kind of man and king that he ought to be. 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 1. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies. As is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Why do I review these passages with you? Because the most important thing for you here this morning is not that you have learned some great things about Ecclesiastes. The question in front of you and in front of me when I come to the word of God and I come to all of Solomon's research and examining and philosophical uh, thoughts that he's given us in the book of Ecclesiastes is what is it going to do in you? What are you going to choose to do with it? You have heard some things, learned some things, examined some things about your own life, but you and I always when we come to the scriptures, all throughout the book, you are faced with a decision about whether or not you will obey what God says. Christians, right? And from generation to generation to generation, the question is, will we listen to God's word? Will we do what God says? Parents, when you are teaching and training and discipling the next generation of kids that are in your home to love and to follow Jesus Christ and his word, do not neglect the command that we have spent just these first few minutes in. You are teaching and training your children to obey God. And the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, in a sense, says, what are you going to do? And that's what we're going to spend time looking at here today. So would you pray with me? And we'll jump into these last few verses here together. Father, for these few minutes, as we look into your word, we ask for great insight beyond our years to understand things about you, to understand things about ourselves where, we're, where we are easily deceived or discouraged or um, frustrated in our ambitions to obey. Would you blow the wind of the Spirit in and through our minds and hearts and give light to our eyes that we might understand the unfolding of your word here this morning? Bless us in that ambition and would we be a people who honors you with the thoughts and intentions of our hearts and the dedication and faithfulness of our hands. And would you bless us in our study. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, now find your way back. Y'all in Ecclesiastes now? Flip back there if you haven't been there. We're going to start in verse 8, and I want to show you how this book is put together. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 8. You see that? 12, verse 8 says this, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Now, in your Bible reading, that's what's known as an inclusio. It includes all of the intervening material. Keep your finger in in chapter 12 and go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. All the way back in the beginning of the book, you'll see that this is how Solomon begins the book. 
The words of the preacher, this is Ecclesiastes 1.1, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So what does he prove by beginning the book and ending the book that way? What Solomon has done is given you two brackets by which all of the intervening material is examined. He says, you remember learning to write essays? Remember that painful process? I hated learning to write. I have to do it all the time now. But in your, in your writing, when you're learning to write, you begin, remember the thesis sentence? You begin with the statement. And by the end, in your conclusion, you repeat your thesis statement. Remember that? This is like fifth grade. You with, remember fifth grade? What have you done? You have stated a hypothesis, a thesis, a statement that you believe to be true, and you fill all the intervening material, and you end and say, therefore, how I began is how I'm ending. And what Solomon is doing by bracketing off all of his material is giving you all of the proof in between, so that you would know when he starts, you and I didn't believe that all of life is vanity. Remember that? Remember way back when we started this book, and we thought, it can't be that all of life is, he's just probably being dramatic. That's Solomon. You know how dramatic he is. So that all of his research in the middle brings you to the end, and now what do we feel like? He's pretty much right, isn't he? All of my ambitions, all my desires, all my work, all my attempt at wisdom, all my intellectual degrees, all my finances, all of my accomplishments and my degree, he's right. All is vanity. Vanity of vanity. All is vanity. So he closes his musings, his examinations with those two realities and gives you Ecclesiastes 1 through Ecclesiastes 12 as proof of all of his research. Now, what happens next in the book is a shift, and Solomon is no longer the primary character and communicator. It's someone called, uh, Solomon is called Koheleth, and it's sometimes thought that Solomon's words are taken and they're collected and brought together into the book of Ecclesiastes. And what we hear at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes is the collector speak up. He's like the narrator over Solomon's life. So the last few verses of Ecclesiastes take the book for you and set it out and then step back and he looks at it. And he says, here's what Solomon has said. And let me tell you why Solomon has said these things. So that you and me, we would look at Solomon's words to us. And we would make the appropriate application. That's important, right? We would know what to do with it. That's what he's about to do. So let's look at verse 9. Here's what you're going to see. You're going to see this collector, this, this individual who amasses all of Solomon's information. He's going to look at, his, at Solomon's character. He's going to look at who he is as, the, as a man who's communicate as an individual with wisdom from on high. And he's going to look at Solomon the man, his character, his competence, his skill at what he does. And then what he's going to do is he's going to look at Solomon's counsel. And he's going to take Solomon out of the picture for a minute. And he's going to take what Solomon has said in his counsel, the words that he has written, and then he's going to apply it and he's going to give you the conclusion to the book of Ecclesiastes. You with me? So Solomon the man, his character, Solomon's counsel, and then a conclusion. Just in four little bitty verses here. Look at verse 9. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 9. Besides being wise. Now, Solomon's wisdom is a gift from God. You remember that? 
Solomon steps into his kingship and he says, oh God, who, I am just a young man. I can't govern all these people. And God says, ask whatever you want. And Solomon says, can I have a wise and discerning mind? And God says, great prayer. I'm going to give it to you. And then that fuels all of Solomon's building and ambition and work and effort and all of that in the, that we see in the book of Ecclesiastes. He's wiser than anybody who's ever lived. He's the wisest among his time. But the collector now steps back and says, Solomon's wisdom is an individual gift, right? Imagine working for Solomon and working for the wisest person who's ever lived. Wouldn't that be annoying? That there's, there's always misunderstanding because you're not as wise as he is. You're not as smart as he is. And what, this, what the collector of Solomon's work is doing for you is, is helping you to see that there's a connection between Solomon's giftedness and Solomon's ministry. Solomon's giftedness and his contribution to people. The book of Ecclesiastes is primarily about Solomon, right? It's somewhat of Solomon's personal, subjective experiences and longings. And we learn lots of lessons from those things because Solomon is so frustrated all the time and comes to the end of himself. So in the book of Ecclesiastes, we see ourselves in Solomon, don't we? We go, boy, I think like that. Boy, I have ambitions like that that aren't going to be realized. Boy, I get frustrated at life the way Solomon does. But now what this collector, this narrator does is, is disconnect Solomon's giftedness and now start to look at the effect of Solomon's life. And now if you know anything about Solomon, we've said this before, Solomon's a bad guy to work for. You get to the end of his life and his son says, hey, everybody around your daddy, his, the guy, his name is uh, Rehoboam. When Rehoboam gets ready to take over for Solomon, Rehoboam goes to the old guys and he says, Hey, how should I rule? And the old guys say, hey, your, walk, your father worked us to the bone. If you would lighten all the labor, all the work, all the drive, all the pushing that you have done, this people will love you forever. We know that Solomon has 900 wives, right? A little too many. <laughs> I mean, he's a polygamist. Or at very least... He's aligning himself with as many people as possible to make sure that his kingdom is as secure as possible. But he also has a great gift of wisdom. But besides that, the narrator shows you something about him. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people. Solomon's wisdom is not for himself, if you recognize that, right? Why does Solomon pray and ask for wisdom? He does it so he can govern well. He recognizes, I don't have the ability, God, to do what you're calling me to do. So God, would you give me wisdom that I might be a blessing to your people? And God says, great idea as a leader. I will give you that wisdom and now you are going to be used in my purposes to bless my people, to write some Bible, and to impact generations of people because of what I do through you. So Solomon isn't merely gifted. The point of Ecclesiastes is not that you and I are trying to be as wise as Solomon, right? The point of Ecclesiastes is that we recognize God's gift to Solomon to teach generations of people who follow the Lord in the years and generations to come. But besides being wise, he taught the people knowledge. This is in 1 Kings 4. You can read it yourself. It talks about how Solomon wrote about all sorts of things like weeds and animals and 
uh, economics and all sorts of stuff that he did to teach the people knowledge. He helped his kingdom. The Solomon, Israel under Solomon's reign was one of the most prolific and successful periods of Israel's history. And it was because Solomon was gifted. But in his ambition to teach people knowledge, I want you to see what the collector does for us. He shows us how hard Solomon worked. We look at Solomon's competence. Look at the remainder of it. He taught the people knowledge, weighing, studying, and arranging many proverbs with great care. The first thing he did was weigh it. It's a term for, uh, in, in these times, you would have weights and measures. You'd have a certain amount of grain or wheat or barley or whatever that would be balanced by the appropriate amount of weight, of weight over here. And you would try to make sure that everything was balanced. It's the idea that Solomon was discerning. Solomon could distinguish in his life between things that were light and frail and wisp-like and things that were meaningful. You ever have, do you have people, I've asked this before, you have people that you would not go to for counsel because they don't give you weighty counsel? Don't, don't elbow or, right, or point. That's not helpful. But Solomon can distinguish between important things and unimportant things. That's a great help with somebody who is wise, right? Not only was he, did he weigh those things, but he studied these things. Solomon had a mind for research. You remember Luke? In the beginning of the book of Luke, Luke says, uh, I decided to write an orderly account for you, Theophilus. Because there have been many people talking about these things, but nobody had a mind to be able to catalog it and research it. And Luke, being a good doctor, is a good researcher. He's a good thinker and studier. I mean, how much study has Solomon done over the course of all of this philosophical searching? He's been exhaustive. Not only did he study, he arranged. That has to do with order. It has to do with making sure things make sense. That I can, t I can trace A through Z and there's a process to it. Solomon isn't just uh, random in the things that he says, right? It may feel like he's emotionally rambling from one topic to the next, but there's a cohesion to the things that he writes, a cohesion to the things that he says. There's order to it. Not only that, there's great care. This is a good mark of anybody who speaks or writes, that there's a heart behind what Solomon is saying. Solomon isn't some distant king from his people, but he cares about the things that he says and the things that he writes so that he puts the appropriate amount of attention into the work that he is doing. He pays attention to what he is doing. And do you, uh, any, who has employees here? Just raise your hand real quick. You, have, you manage people. Come on, don't be afraid. There you go. Okay, you manage people. Isn't it nice to have people that work for you who pay great attention to what they do? Amen? Right? Solomon recognizes, I have a personal diligence and responsibility in the things that I am doing to love and to care and to serve others, to gather, to study, to research, to arrange in such a way that people are blessed by what it is that I do. If you've ever had a great teacher or a great coach, there are echoes of this kind of heart in them. Now, while verse 9 is about his effort, his intensity, verse 10 is about the effect. 
what kind of effect is Solomon looking to accomplish in the hearts and minds of people that he cares about and that he ministers to, that he leads as the king of God's people. Verse 10, the preacher sought to find words of delight. What a great phrase. He sought to say things and to write things that would be a blessing and a delight to those who hear them. He sought to put work into not just what he says, but how he says it. You ever meet somebody who's just a truth guy? I just tell it like it is. I just let it fly. I give him all chambers. That's not Solomon. Solomon is concerned about how people hear what he is saying. Isn't that great to hear? That Solomon has some rabbit fur, some velvet to him in the things that he is saying. But on the other hand, it's balanced by what the remainder of the verse says. Look what the remainder of the verse says. And uprightly, he wrote words of truth. Which means he was never so sweet in speech to obscure the point. He was never so delicate and delightful that you would walk away going, I wonder what he was talking about. I sure felt good, but I don't really know what he was saying. Let me give you, how about, let me give you an example of this. Proverbs 24, 26. I'm sorry, 25, 11. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. What happens when you're around somebody who says the right thing at the right time? It's like jewelry. It's precious. It's valuable in the context. How about this? A contrast. Proverbs 27, 14. Whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice, rising early in the morning, will be counted as cursing. Is there a wrong time to say the right thing? Amen? Boy, amen. Amen. How about Ephesians 4, move into the New Testament. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good as for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. James chapter 3, out of the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brothers, this ought not be. That many times for those of us who have a pension and a desire to be truth guys, we think that the unvarnished truth will really bless people if I kick them in the chest. They'll really be one to the faith when I go right for the jugular. I was like, maybe you should spend five minutes and I don't know, pray. See what God has to say about that. And on the other hand, those of us who feel timid in terms of bringing up the truth, that we have to move more to the center, don't we? We have to move more toward talking about who Christ is and what God's word says and what God says about situations. And we've got people on both sides in this room, don't we? We've got people who tend toward being truth sayers, who need to grow in grace, grow in patience, grow in some rabbit fur and some velvet on their words, and people who need to be couraged away from just pure delight into speaking the truth how? In love, speaking the truth in love. So you see, Solomon is greatly concerned about the things that he writes. He's greatly concerned about their, their effect on people. 
Solomon, all through the book of Ecclesiastes, all through the book of Proverbs, is not reckless. He's trying to paint word pictures so that you would get the truth of what he's saying. In fact, the whole Bible is like that. That it's from the mind of God to be able to tell us the truth, but at the same time to raise up the truth of God that we might go, that is beautiful, that is what I want, that is the way I ought to be living. All right, that's Solomon. Pretty good, right? Now let's look at his content. Solomon from this point is not going to be mentioned anymore. And the collector, the narrator, is going to kind of take Solomon's experience and his, his subjective experience, all the philosophical wanderings and searchings that he's done, and what he's going to do is start to distill and bring out the council itself so that you would not get distracted with the man or the person. That you would not be too impressed with this individual and all that he's done and all he's accomplished. But now the narrator is going to pull out this thing so that you might examine the counsel for what it is. Because for you and for me, we need to take Solomon's counsel and bring it into our own lives, don't we? And we have to distill down the truths in 2022. And here's what the narrator says. Look at verse 11. See, all of Ecclesiastes has dealt with Solomon's subjective experience, right? Here's what it's like when I felt this. Here's what it's like when I worked and I realized I got to die and give it all away. Here's what it's like when I enjoy my work, but I recognize it's not going to sustain me. Here's what it was like when I used wisdom and it didn't work. When I used wisdom and I couldn't control my situation and my circumstances. And we can understand that because we have those experiences. But now let's look at the council. Verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads. So now what the narrator does is he puts you in line with the people we started with. That God has raised up scripturally men at times to speak his word from generation to generation to generation that the word of God and the wisdom of God might now be made known to all of the people. So we gave you Moses, we gave you Joshua, we gave you David, we give you Solomon. And the narrator steps back and says, the words of these wise people are like goads. Now, you may not know what a goad is. A goad is about an eight-foot-long stick. And you stand behind oxen. And so you don't get kicked by the ox. You have a really, really long stick that helps you to poke and to prod and to direct the ox. You with me? So here's what the words of the wise ought to do in your life. The narrator says that words of wisdom have some bite to them. Do you know that? That when you come to the scriptures and you come to the men who have written the book of, that was whole, held in front of us, that you shouldn't walk away from the scriptures without feeling the sting of the truth in your life. The sting of God's corrective discipline the sting of his insight that has something to say about the way that you are speaking, the way that you are working, the way that you are studying, the way that you are relating to the opposite sex, the way that you are working, the way that your marriage is going, the way that your parenting is going, the way that you're stewarding your money, that the, the word of God is designed to be that little bit of, uh. Amen? 
right? That that's a part of the Christian life. You don't read the Bible and go, it's always blessing me all the time. There should be times when you feel the body blow of scripture and you should feel like it hits you in the heart and it makes you wake up and it says, I am going the wrong way. I need to reorient. So the words of the wise are meant to give you and me direction. God doesn't leave us alone in this story. Not only that, the words of the wise are like nails, firmly fixed, are the collected sayings. You ever try to pull out a nail with your fingers? Yeah, you don't, because you don't do that, right? You get an object, an implement, a claw hammer, and that helps you get the nail out. So what's this image? See, this is an image of stability. This is an image of strength. If you are paying attention in your Bible reading to God directing your life, your, your thinking, your emotions, your affections, your worship, your relationships with people, the way that you are using your words, you will find sooner or later that you are building a life of strength as you build on the word of God. You are building in such a way that you are driving the nails of truth into your life that you can hang your life on them. You can begin to build a life of stability and strength because you are coming back to the source of truth. Finally, look at that at the end of it. You see how Solomon is nowhere to be seen now? But somebody else comes into center view. That the words of the wise are like goads, they give direction, like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They give us strength and stability in our lives. And they're given by one what? You got a capital S and shepherd in your Bible? Who's this collector looking at? This is, this is a text that speaks to the Old Testament inspiration. That it's not just Solomon. There's somebody behind Solomon. There's somebody who is giving Solomon wisdom and insight that is beyond his years, beyond his experience. And the collector steps back and for a moment says, this can be none other than the very word of God. There's nobody else who can speak like this unless this individual is carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is all of what the New Testament, Peter talks about this. Let me give you this. This is 2 Peter 1. You don't need to turn there. Uh, 2 Peter 1 is about Peter's uh, view of the word of God. And Peter is writing at a time when he recognizes that he was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. And as he looks at that experience that Peter himself had, he responds and writes about something that is more certain and more sure than his own personal experience of seeing Jesus disrobed of his humanity and exploding with deity on the mountain. He says this, 2 Peter 1.19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. There's something more reliable than my personal experience on the mountain to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Solomon wasn't just winging it and writing stuff down. It wasn't created out of Solomon's mind. 
Peter's writing in a time when they're still writing New Testament. And Peter looks back at the Old Testament record and said the Spirit of God was alive and active in the Old Testament too, helping these kings and leaders to write God's word for God's people. It didn't come from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I had my... uh, my son had a conversation with a, a kid in the neighborhood this week. And this kid was saying, uh, maybe Jesus rose from the dead. Maybe he turned water into wine. Who wrote the Bible? And my son's got a little bit of in him. I, I love it about him. I love it. And he goes, well, Solomon did. That's right. And then he said, and you can talk to my dad about it. I went, whoa, wait wait a second now. We got some training to do, young buck. But he's right. He says, behind Solomon is somebody who supports Solomon. And all through the scriptures, this is true. How do we have the Bible written over 1,500 years with 40 different authors in three different languages, on three different continents, all saying the same thing. You can't get your grandfather and your grandkids to agree. And you've got hundreds of years of biblical testimony and witnesses that all say the same thing, that all point to the unity of God and who he is and what he has done. The Bible is not a book that man would write even if he could. It has to be inspired by the Spirit of God. And Christians, you read it and you know that to be true, isn't it? You feel it, you read it, you experience it, and you know that you commune with the maker of heaven and earth. So the words of the wise are meant to give you direction. The words of the wise are meant to give you stability and strength in life. Because the words of the wise are given by the one true shepherd. Verse 12. It's a warning though, verse 12. My son. My, Solomon uses the phrase my son in uh, Proverbs more than 30 different times. Because Solomon recognizes, listen, you, parents, you recognize this. Our wisdom can't die with us. Right? Mothers and fathers who raise kids, baby girls and baby boys that we bring up in our home isn't the greatest weight on your heart that your kids might know Christ? That they might know and understand the maker of heaven and earth, the one shepherd who was spoken by his grace in his word? And here's this collector saying, here's what Solomon has written. And he takes the hand of his boy and says, read this. Look at this. And in verse 12, beware of this. My son, beware of anything beyond these. What's these in context? It's the words of the wise, right? Beware. Now, what is he saying to his son? What is he saying to the next generation? He's saying in the next generation, there will be people who avoid, conceal, deny, ignore the words of the wise. And not only will they ignore, conceal, deny the words of the wise, but they will seek to replace them. 
They will seek to add to them. And we know this, don't we? We know that in, listen, that the things that you hear in the news, on Christian radio, on the books that are coming out, you recognize that there's always this temptation to add to the pure word of God. I, yeah, God's word is good, but you also need this book. It's at Barnes and Noble for $19.99. And you can get it today. I'll give, it's half off. You're gonna save $10, which you haven't even spent. But I'll give it to you for $9.99. Yeah, you got a Bible that's the most reproduced book in all of history that's been given down through the ages to guide and to inform and to help God's people know him. But boy, in 2022, this book is the thing that we've been missing. People in the 90s, they had no idea. But now you have this book to put alongside your Bible on that shelf. Isn't this amazing? I'm so glad you live in this time where you could give me your money. We have such an opportunity for you to know and to understand all the things that I've written in this book. Do you see, I mean, if you're in book publishing, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's your line of work, I get it. You gotta push the next thing. But he's saying to his son, beware of going beyond the scriptures. Beware of going beyond what is written. The Psalms say that the word of God is like silver refined seven times. It is the utmost purity. The word of God is referred to as light. The word of God is referred to as giving us understanding. Beware of anything beyond these. Come back to the book. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. Students who just did finals week, amen? Right? You, know, you know what I'm talking about. But what's interesting in this verse is where he puts these realities. That there's a temptation to add to God's word. You see that? Beware of anything beyond these. That you will feel the temptation to add to God's word. I just need God's word and something else. Needs God's word and this thing. I need God's word and that conference. And that speaker. And that And it sets you on the course of an inevitable, a never-ending search. A search where you're always learning and never able to arrive at the truth. And what does it make you? It makes you tired. That you're exhausted in the end. By the end of that search, when you're outside of God's word, you never find rest for your soul. I feel this in our culture, in the people I teach viscerally. I long for us as a church to understand that God has spoken. He has an opinion. You have the opportunity to hear from the one who made the giraffes and the stars and the bugs and the oceans. He can talk to you. Don't get distracted. Don't get tempted to go beyond what is written. For you to be the man or the woman that God wants you to be is going to take profound amounts of meditation 
and scripture and knowledge. I talked to, Glenda, you and I talked last week and we were talking about, um, it was good, <laughs> so powerful. She was talking to me about scripture memory. And she said, now that I'm old and there are things that I forget easy, the scriptures that come to mind the most are the ones that I memorized when I was young. How are you doing? Do you have a greater knowledge of Romans than you do what is being posted on Facebook? Do you have a greater knowledge of what Habakkuk talks about than what you hear on the news or what you read on the blog? Is your mental conversation when you talk to yourself or encourage a neighbor or counsel a friend, is it, does it come with chapter and verse attached to it? And this collector steps back from the words of the wise and says, my son, beware, pay attention, come back to the thing that will give you life, that will promise to build your life with direction and stability with a shepherd who's given from heaven to be able to lead you and to guide you into paths of righteousness. Beware. Verse 13. The end of the matter. Here's his conclusion. All has been heard. How exhaustive. Let's just take the book of Ecclesiastes. Has Solomon pushed out all of his philosophical questions into, into the nth degree? He's done the work, hasn't he? He's studied and thought and examined and researched and experienced everything. He's more rich than we'll ever be. He's more accomplished than we'll ever be. He's examined it all. He's come right to death's door and described everything that you and I are gonna experience as we get old. And he gets to the end and the collector says, the end uh, of the matter. All has been heard. We've touched all the bases and we're on our way back home. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. You want Ecclesiastes in half a verse? It's right there, Ecclesiastes 12, 13b. There's the whole of Ecclesiastes. Isn't it interesting that, that Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 says, Fear of the Lord comes after everything has been heard. Everybody has said everything. And at the end of the day, fear God. That speaks to our motivations, doesn't it? It speaks to the God awareness that you and me experience in our lives. That when I go through, uh, when I counsel people, when I go through difficulties in my own life where I can't see a way out, I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't know what's going to go on in this situation. One of the questions that I often ask myself in the midst of that tension and that uncertainty and that, God, I don't know what to do in this situation, my ambition in those moments is to go, all right, in 20 years, I want to look back on this moment and be proud of the man that I was. I want to look back on this time, and I want to hear, looking forward to that future day, I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. If that means I had to speak the truth and nobody agreed, if that means I had to persevere when it was hard and I didn't understand, I'll do that. 
But I want my life to be characterized by a God awareness that the motivations of my heart might be pleasing to him, that my ambition would be in my life to live with a recognition that God is the creator. Now, fear God has been mentioned four different times in the book of Ecclesiastes, if you've been with us through this series. It was first mentioned back in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, it was the time for everything. Remember that? A time to build, a time to uproot, a time to, to plant, a time to die. It was the variability of life. And we all felt like we, we can't do anything when life is so variable. But in Ecclesiastes 3, it speaks to God's enduring power to accomplish everything that he sets out to accomplish. That, was, that gives us uh, confidence, don't we? That God, doesn't, God is not frustrated by the variability of life. We may be, but God is not. And it says in Ecclesiastes that I perceive that what God does lasts forever, endures forever, so that men may fear God. And then it shows up in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Remember when fools go to church? Remember that sermon? Where fools come into the church and they start blabbing, they start yapping about all the problems they have with the way that God is running the universe, all the anxiety that they have in their heart, all of this blabbering that they do when they come to church. And they come to talk, they don't come to listen. And Ecclesiastes 5 says, when dreams increase, the words grow many, there's vanity, but God is the one you must fear. That I need to be thinking more about God than what I think. I need to be thinking more about God than my current anxieties over my situation. That I try to work this through into my own kids when we talk about, would Jesus want us to be thinking about those things, Right? When G would Jesus want us to be thinking about those right things, those ugly things, those good things, those worrisome things? How do we begin to navigate our mental, uh, kind of our mental sobriety? It shows up in, in chapter 8. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he doesn't fear before God. That Solomon recognizes in the beginning everything that God does endures forever so that we might fear God. That I don't need to talk too much at church, I need to fear God. I need to reverence God, I need to live with a God awareness in my mind. I need to recognize that judgment falls into the hands of God, right? That God's the one who's gonna be in charge of judging the wicked and the righteous. That's in God's hands. So we fear God. Not only that though, you have the second half of it. Fear God and keep his commandments. See, the occupational hazard that I started with for the Christian is learning the Bible, not obeying the Bible. Is knowing the stories, but not obeying the Bible is being familiar with the biblical characters, is singing really loud at Easter and at Christmas, but not obeying, of recognizing that there's a God who is the maker of heaven and earth and who's in charge of everything and who I ought to fear, and I really mean well on the inside, but I don't do what I'm supposed to do. So that Solomon, the collector, takes both of these ideas, fear of God, Respect who he is. Live with a God awareness. But don't neglect obedience. Right? Put them together. What that is called is having integrity. That you are the same on the inside as you are on the outside. What's it called when you say one thing and do another? 
Hypocrisy, isn't it? And here's the whole summation of the book of Ecclesiastes. No matter what you're thinking, what your ambitions are, what your anxieties are, what your hopes and your dreams are for your future, one thing is certain, that you today can put the entire book of Ecclesiastes into work when you leave this place, if you leave fearing God and focusing on obedience. Amen? That that's what it boils down to. That we got motivation and application. You just got motivation, no application. You gonna have problems? Oh, you mean well. But you got a lot of application, but no reverence of God. You got a problem over there too? Yeah, you're just busy and you're tired. You're doing things, but it's with an eye on others. I wanna do stuff so that people will see me. I wanna do stuff so that they'll think well of me. I wanna do stuff so that they pay attention to me, not that I'm connected to the Lord of heaven and earth. Four, here's your motivation. God will bring every deed into judgment. When I look back at those seasons, I recognize in my life when things aren't going the way I expect, when I am filled with anxiety, when I have uncertainty about what is in front of me and my ambition is to fear God and obey, I've got to rest in the fact that I may not get the answer now and here, right? And we're good Americans. We like the answer now and here. I like it to take about as long as it takes for me to heat up my coffee again. And then I want it resolved. But there are some answers you will not get in this life. There are some answers where things will not be untied and released and restored and understood until Jesus returns and makes all things new. You okay with that? You gotta live with a forward tilt to your Christian life. Understand that God's not gonna explain everything to you. But God will bring every deed into judgment. You know, Revelation 20 says that the books were opened and men were judged according to what they had done. You think God's going to miss any? We feel like God's going to, don't we? God, what about that one back there? I got it. I'll take care of it. Jesus says that on the day of judgment, men will give an account for every careless word. Paul says in the book of Romans, on that day of judgment, that God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus, which is what Solomon says next. God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing. Every single motivation will be exposed. Every single ambition that you don't tell people about but really drives your heart and drives your life will be judged and examined by the one with eyes like flaming fire. That he will bring every deed with every secret thing, whether good or evil, into judgment. So how do we live? Fear God and obey. Trust the future to him. Live life with the woman that God has given you under your vain life and all the days. Drink smoothies. Get a steak. Enjoy your life. And God will make it plain when he judges it all. Right? Let's close this book with words from the wisest man who's ever walked the earth. Matthew 7, 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. May that be your life. May that be my life. 
May that be the beating heart of this church, that we would fear God and obey his commandments. Father in heaven, thank you for this book that exposes us, that reveals us, that challenges us to examine our motivations, our own experiences, the ambitions of our lives. And Father, would you give us, even this morning as we consider the final few sentences of this book, an ambition to fear God and obey what you say. For the difficult situations that are represented in this room by the many people who are here this morning, we pray that your word would orient us. That the difficult decisions that we ought to make would be informed by fearing God and living alone for your pleasure and your delight because that's our duty. Father, the obedience that we are called to might be rooted in respect of who you are, that you are the creator and we are creatures and may we honor you with our lives. Would we say with the psalmist, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.